Welcome into the NHL at the Rink podcast. Dan Rosen here, recording this on Wednesday, joined by Sean Rourke. Sean, how you doing, man? I'm doing awesome. Really looking forward to this week's show. Uh, some good banter, plus some fantastic guests. We have Justin Williams on from the Carolina Hurricanes. It was great catching up with him, talking a little bit about what he's doing during the pause and and, and kind of reliving some of last year's playoff run for them, um, as well as some news updates. And then we have our colleague Nick Kotzdemika on, who's pretty plugged in on exactly what's going on with the pause. So I think it's going to be fun, and I also think it's going to be informative. So let's get to it. Yeah, let's get to it. But before we get to Nick and then Justin, we certainly do have to acknowledge the sad news in the hockey world. Colby Cave passed away Saturday, the Edmonton Oilers forward. He, four days after having surgery to remove a colloid cyst, a brain bleed, he was in a medically induced coma. Such a sad story. 25 years old, Colby Cave. Way too young, but... What happened Monday in Saskatchewan was amazing, right, Sean? I mean, well-wishers lined their cars for miles to pay respects to the Oilers forward, uh, whose family was bringing his body back to his hometown, North Battleford, Saskatchewan. The picture that I saw from Scott Moe, the premier of Saskatchewan, of the cars and some of the stuff, Eric Griba, the former Oilers forward, was there as well, tweeting out some pictures. Such a sad story, but so heartwarming to see the greeting that the Cave family got and in Saskatchewan and what Colby meant for that community. It's a crushing story, and, and obviously our sympathies go out to the family. And what I can only imagine is, is a, I know is a difficult time made only more difficult by the circumstances we're all living through now. Um, but those pictures, I you know, the only time you ever see those really are with military funerals or policeman funerals, right? Where, where they kind of, everybody shows up to, to pay their respects and, and to show respect for people that have kind of died in, in, in the line of duty, right? And, you know, to see that for, for Colby was amazing. And the, and the pictures are, you said it, they're, they're both uplifting and heartbreaking at the same time, um, you know, and, and the emotions that have poured out, you know, the makeshift, uh, uh, remembrance at, at the Oilers arena and, and everything online. It, it, it's just crushing. It's totally crushing, but some good could come of it. I mean, the Oilers introduced the Colby cave Memorial fund on Tuesday to honor their former player. And that's going to support initiatives that Colby was very keen on, you know, it's supporting mental health initiatives, sports for underprivileged children. Uh, a link for that can be found on the Oilers website. So look, I mean, he's 25 years old. It's way too young. We can go, Hours and hours on that and how how horrible this is. But this is something that the Oilers are doing with the Cave family and some really good things could come of this in Colby's memory. Oh yeah, for sure. And look, I, I think one of the one of the most the more amazing tributes I saw, and it was anonymous, was was a player from the ECHL who talked about Colby. Everybody loved Colby that played with him when he was in Providence. He was a fan favorite. He was a team favorite. And, and in that team, a lot of guys that were playing in the ECHL, there was a, there was a chance he was going to come down after training camp. And one of the players said, you know, he never came down, but we were always rooting for him because every player that went up, Colby was the first one to introduce himself, to make them feel at home, um, you know, to take care of them and, and to hope that they, 
got promoted again to the big show. So when he was finally able to make it, you know, this player said that they all felt like they had made it as well. And, and I think, you know, when you, when you look back at, at players and, and what they do on the ice and, and everything else, uh, the ones that really strike a chord and, and generate this kind of reaction are the ones that are the most human and, and are the most like we want to be and like we would like to be if we're professional athletes and, you know, pulling for other people and lifting other people up and, and by all accounts, Colby did all of that. So the stories have been great, and, and it's great that his legacy will live on. I, I know it, it's been a really tough week in the sports world. Um, not a player, but a, a, another great sports person died this week in New York, and Anthony Causey, the New York Post photographer, who did a lot of work documenting the Rangers and, and, and the Islanders and, and the Devils to a degree, and every other sport in New York over the last 20-plus years. Um, my wife's a professional photographer, was uh, in the past. She worked a lot with Anthony, one of the nicest men I've ever met and one of the biggest personalities I've ever met. So it, it's been a hard week all around sports-wise. No kidding, Sean. Absolutely. I saw Anthony at so many Ranger games, and it's just crushing, right? But the outpouring from the New York media that knew Anthony. Uh, Mike Vaccaro in the New York Post wrote a, just a stirring column uh, on him and what he meant. Uh, and, and, I mean, I had athletes like Derek Jeter, you know, putting out pictures that Anthony took of, uh, you know, moments for him. So he was at all these Rangers games and Devils games and Islanders games that I can recall and certainly will be missed. A tough week, but we do have to move on and let's look at what's happening now in the National Hockey League, at least. Players and staff uh, for teams have now been asked to quarantine until April 30th. That's pushed back from April 15th. Not surprised by that. The, the league continues to follow the guidelines. We'll talk more about this with Nick Tatsunika, who has been in touch with, with Bill Daly, uh, the deputy commissioner, on a daily basis, uh, on a weekly basis, I should say. But uh, not surprised that we're back to April 30th. And I think the league is right. They're doing this in stages, not pushing too far ahead, looking at it in a couple of weeks ahead. Okay, what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks, right, Sean? Yes. And, and look, I mean, everything that Gary Bettman said since since this has started is that you have to be flexible and you have to be agile. And I think if you paint yourself in a corner by looking too far ahead and, and putting yourself and saying, you know, coming right out of the gate and saying, we're not going to do anything until this date. And then things change somehow. You, when you have time, use it. Right. And, and that's kind of what any great managers ever said. Um, you know, uh, it's one of Lou Lamarillo's favorite sayings, when you have time, use it. And, and that's the case here. You have time, so use it and use it in increments, right? Keep people engaged, keep the players engaged. You know, here's a date and here's what we're looking at. And it never hurts to push it back. It would hurt to, to go too early and to say, you know, this is the date and the, we set this date and now it's here and now we're going to move forward. With the circumstances as they are right now, you can't do that. It, it appears when you look at the news and, and you kind of see some of the statements coming out that we're getting closer to that point when you can think about doing other things but we're not there yet no we're not there yet and there's also so many options on the table we'll talk about with nick in term including you know neutral site games which obviously have been brought up i thought it was interesting this week though you had sean couturier the flyers forward on a conference call and he was talking about optimism about how he definitely believes the stanley cup will be awarded this year and then I was on a call with Drew Doughty, arranged by the Los Angeles Kings, and he wasn't as optimistic. He, he, he thinks it's going to be very difficult for the season to resume with everything that's going on. But what was funny, Sean, was Doughty was then asked, would his viewpoint change? Would he be a little bit more optimistic maybe 
if the Kings were in it, if they weren't so low in the standings, as the Flyers are obviously higher in the standings. And and Dowdy, without question and quickly, says, absolutely, yeah, for sure, my view would change. So it also goes by how you feel about where you are in the standings right now and what are you working towards, right? I mean, Sean Couturier knows what he's working towards. Drew Dowdy isn't so sure. Yeah, of course, and mentally, like that's how how you approach it, right? If you if you know there's something at the end that's worthwhile to work through, you do it, right? You save it for a vacation. You save extra hard because there's a payoff at the end. If if you don't have anything there, you probably don't save. You get takeout instead or do whatever. So certainly, it has to do with your position in the standings. I think it also probably has to do with your personality in general. Whether you're an optimistic or pessimistic person, glass half full or glass half empty. Um, but everybody's going to have a different opinion. And in the end, it's going to be, you know, it, it doesn't really matter how anybody feels about it. The science and the safety are going to dictate it. So, um, you know, there may be players that aren't excited about playing hockey in the summer, um, if that's what it comes to. But again, you know, it's your job and in the, in the end, you're going to do it. So, um you know, it is interesting to see where everybody's coming at it and, and how they're dealing with the pause. And, and, you know, we talked about this a little bit, and I think it was the last podcast. You know, it's much like working from home. The proof's going to be in the pudding when everybody shows up and has to go through training camp, whether they've taken this pause seriously as far as being prepared and being ready for when we do come back. Because there, there's no hiding from the scale and the fitness tests and, and, and the eye test of being ready to play hockey again. No, definitely not. And I've heard training camp and Gary Bettman talked about it, you know, could be upwards of two or three weeks to try to get these guys back up and running. Let's talk more about that and everything that's gone on with the news surrounding the NHL. Let's bring in our colleague, Nick Katsunika, columnist with NHL.com. Nick, how you doing, man? I'm great, guys. How are you? Doing well, Nick. In the lead into this, we were talking a little bit about some of the news that's come up and, uh, we sold you pretty high and, and you being the insider, having talked to Bill Daly and, and, you know, probably being a little more on top of some of this than we are. So how about a, how about a general overview of where things stand as we are right now in the pause with the business of hockey? Well, to me, the biggest takeaway is that the NHL is committed to playing the rest of this season. Uh, and it's going to wait as long as it takes uh, before making a decision. Um, you know, this morning, uh, Gary Bettman was on Fox Business, and he said his guess at this point is we're going to be playing into the summer, which is something they can certainly do. Um, you know, with the Tokyo Olympics being postponed, there's TV time. Uh, there's arena time uh, if they can play in arenas in, in July and August. You know, neutral sites have come up. Uh, but the other big takeaway for me is that this is not going to be done recklessly. Uh, you know, first and foremost, it's about safety uh, and not putting anybody's health at risk. Uh, that's players, that's personnel, that's fans. Um, so before anything can happen, it has to be safe. You know, so the NHL has extended the self-quarantine period for players and staff through April 30th. Um, and then they'll make another determination, you know, around that point. Before you can play, you have to get players together in small groups and have a training camp. Uh, and Gary Bettman said that's going to be two to three weeks to get into game shape. You need to have testing. So when it's time to play, you're going to have to get everybody back from Europe and around North America. You're going to have to be able to test them. 
to make sure that they're not infecting each other and infecting the greater population. Uh, they're going to have to get in shape. Um, and then they're going to have to find, you know, a way to play and then find sort of uh, a format to play, right? Like how many regular season games, what type of playoffs are you going to have? So there's tons of moving parts here. Uh, but again, the takeaway is the NHL wants to finish this season, you know, as soon as it's safe. All of what you just mentioned, it is a lot, certainly. Uh, when you, uh, the, you know, I'm listening to you talk and I'm like, my goodness, there's so much. But that's what the league has been doing. I mean, that's what the executives in the league have been doing. They've been making contingency plans for contingency plans for contingency plans, right? So one of the things you did mention, though, neutral site games without fans or with fans, but could be without fans. What have you heard from Bill Daly on that uh, and the idea behind neutral site games in terms of is that a serious option for the NHL? Uh, What has Bill been telling you about that? So you're right. I mean, this is the NHL's job right now. I mean, the, the coronavirus is out of the NHL's control. The government and health authorities and their edicts are out of the NHL's control. So it's sort of just like playing the game, right? You control what you can. And what the NHL can control right now is its planning and preparedness for whatever scenarios. So neutral site, to be clear about two things. One, um, it's still in the early stages of planning and exploration, right? They're making lists of what, um, what they would need. You know, I would think that the NHL's outdoor game experience gives it sort of a template to work from you know, in terms of taking the show on the road somewhere. Yeah. Um, You know, but also number two, it's clearly not the NHL's preference to do this. Playing without fans, playing a neutral site is not the preference. But the problem that you have is sort of the reality on the ground. It's probably different from location to location in terms of the status of the coronavirus and the government edicts uh, and health authority edicts, right? So, this is a possibility that's been discussed because it may be the safest and most efficient way to resume the season. But I also don't think it's so far along that this is going to happen. Um, it's one of the things that the NHL has discussed and is planning for in case that's you know the best option when the time comes. At this point, that's all you can really do. And as you prepare for all the possibilities of restarting a season, everything else kind of gets pushed back a little bit, you know, uh, free agency, the draft lottery, um, the draft itself, all of those things. Has there been any news as far as what's going to happen on those fronts? Uh, Nothing solid. Um, But yes, all of that's going in the background, right? You've got the combine, you've got uh, the draft lottery, the draft, um, the awards. And, you know, I know, um, you know, NHL Central Scouting, for example, has been working on this and sending memos to teams. I know teams can do remote visits with players uh, to do sort of interviews that they would have done at the Combine. But, it's, you know, it's, it's, you can't have in-person testing, right? Uh, you can't have a draft lottery until you know how you're going to finish your regular season. Um, so there's a lot of moving parts here. But just like the season, these are all things that, uh, are being talked about. Um, you know, it's funny, the NHL awards, you know, obviously they're not going to have, you know, the usual show in Vegas in, in June. Um, but I asked Bill Daly at one point, I said, if, if the season's canceled, do you give out awards? Mm-hmm. And he kind of laughed and he said, you know, 
That's something I haven't even thought of yet. I'll add that to the list, right? Like they have <laughs> a, a huge list of things and each one's important and each one, let's face it, lots of people are going to have opinions on what they should do or, you know, and when they do it, what they should have done. Um, not everyone's going to be happy, um, yet they have to make the decisions. And, um, you know, there's still time here. It's mid-April. Uh, it seems like this has dragged on forever, but there's still a long way to go. You talked about the draft and the draft lottery. I kind of think of the prospects now as almost as if like, you know, like high school seniors who don't get their prom and don't get their graduation or something like that. These, these draft, you know, the draft kids don't get their combine and their yeah. run up and the big draft maybe and all that. But that's just the way we got to go with it. One of the, one of the questions I got, Nick was about Alexis Lafreniere, who's the number one prospect right now. And, this could hit home with you. Uh, I got it from my mailbag this week. I'm curious your opinion on it. What it would mean to the Red Wings if they were to get the number one pick and, and be able to to draft him. Uh, w- w- moving on from the topic of the news of the day from the NHL, w- let's look at from the, the Red Wings' perspective. What would that mean to, to get the number one pick and be able to draft this guy? Well, let's look at this two different ways. Okay, One, um, each team, this is a very competitive league, and each team is out for its own self-interest, okay? So as the league goes through all these scenarios, what do we do, what do we do? <laughs> all the teams are, yeah. are sort of jockeying for whatever works best for them. So I'm sure there's a bunch of teams that are like, open up the draft lottery to everybody, right? I've seen that idea floated, right? The Red Wings are like, no way! You know, like, we, they're the one team, you know, that's sort of locked in the position, right? So... Um, you know, I'm sure from the Detroit perspective, they're like, no way are you changing the lottery. Like, we want the best odds for the number one pick. Um, so that's sort of the, the coronavirus angle to it. You know, the Red Wings angle, you know, I made a comment, you know, I don't know, a month or two ago to somebody in their front office, and I said, you guys have got to get the, the number one pick out of this season, right? This miserable season, you got to turn it into a, a superstar. And he looked at me and he said, you know, we have to turn it into a difference maker no matter where we pick. You know, obviously they'd like the number one pick. They'd like, you know, the player they feel is the best player. But if they don't get the number one pick, uh, they still have to turn it into something, right? Kale McCarr is an example where he drops the four, um, you know, and, you know, the Avalanche turned it into an outstanding player. That, that's the way the Red Wings have to look at it right now. They can't control the lottery. So no matter no matter where they draft, they have to hit and they have to get a difference maker. And not only that, they have to get a difference maker, but they need to still have patience, right? I mean, uh, I think if they were to get a number one pick, I, I my fear is that fans would jump and be like, look at all our prospects that we have now. Look at these picks that we've gotten. And some of the guys that are already in the NHL, like, we should be good quickly. It, it doesn't work like that. I'm, even if they got the number one pick, you still have to have a, a level of patience for another three, four years, right? Well, there's no, there's no question. Um, you know, they have some prospects. Uh, you know, they, they surprised everybody by drafting Mo Sider, you know, the defenseman from Germany uh, last year, by all accounts. Uh, he's looked really good, and he may be a really good player. Um, you know, they have Philip Zadina, they have Joe Valeno, they, they have some younger players that they've kept in Grand Rapids uh, to play at the American League level um, that they feel good about. But, um, yeah, it's going to take time. You know, Iserman came to Detroit, and everyone was really excited for good reason. 
you know, obviously he's got his background as a winner in Detroit. I don't know how relevant that is other than the, than the emotional ties. If you're looking at him as an executive, um, when he took over the Tampa Bay Lightning, the Lightning were in a far better position than the Red Wings are when he, now and when he took them over originally. They had Steven Stamkos and they had Victor Hedman, right? Two outstanding, you know, a number one center and a number one defenseman um, already. Uh, they also had Marty Saint-Louis and Vinny LeCavier as veterans and who were still outstanding, right? So that was his starting point in Tampa Bay. They, they went on that playoff run his first year. He still rebuilt that team. They still missed the playoffs, I think, back-to-back years after that. Um, it was still a process for him to build them up into a contender. So uh, I think there's a long way to go in Detroit, even if they get the number one pick. Uh, they, you need more than one player. You know, the other – sorry to talk so long. You know, everybody says, well, they need another Iserman. I agree with you. But they, got, they drafted Steve Eiserman in 1983. They didn't win the Stanley Cup till 1997 after they had Lidstrom and Fedorov and so many other players. It's hard. Uh, so I just think that realistically they still have a long way to go. Oh, for sure. I mean, when you guys are talking about it, to me, it just it screams what happened to the Devils this year, right? Oh, we won the lottery. We got Jack Hughes. We made a couple moves in free agency. We're going to be awesome. They're in if they do the lottery the same way, they're in the same boat as the as the Red Wings and could win it again. So I don't know as quickly as teams can get better. I don't know that there is a quick fix, even with the most elite player in the draft. Well, there are tons of examples. Okay, let's look at you know Pittsburgh. You know it took a number of years to amass Crosby, Malkin, Latang, Fleury. Right? It took the Chicago Blackhawks years to amass, you know, they had to start out with Duncan Keith, you know, they had to get, you know, Taze and Kane and, you know, a whole bunch of supporting players. Um, you look at right now, the, the, obviously the Edmonton Oilers are a prime example of having tons of top picks. You know, the other thing is not every number one pick is created equal. We know that, right? Like some years you get Connor McDavid, um, you know, some years you get a very good player, right? Like who's not, Connor McDavid. I don't honestly know how to project uh, Lafreniere. I, I'm not a scout. I'm not an expert at that. I, I you know he's a really good player. I don't know how good he'll be. Is he Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid, or is he not quite that? I, I don't know. So um, you know you have to be lucky in the lottery, a to get the number one pick, and then you have to be lucky to be lucky in the right year. Nick, before we let you go. I wanted to ask you, uh, and Sean, this question goes to you. What do you guys think of me right now? Because I came up with the Super 16 idea for uh, ranking <laughs> centers and goalies. I can't imagine you guys are too happy with me right now. Uh, we did centers last can week. We swear? We can, can, can we swear on <laughs> a podcast? Not so easy, huh? We did Super 16 centers, top centers from 1967 on. So we're looking at expansion era. And this week, Super 16 goalies, 67 on, is going to run Thursday. Uh, Nick, how long did you spend on your goalies? Hours. And, <laughs> I mean, I'm serious, hours. And, and some of it is, frankly, I'm, you know, in self-quarantine here, and I have hours to spend. But some of it is, if, if you're going to take it seriously, like, you have to sit down and do the work and map it out. Like, I, I you know, the first challenge, and I thought goalies were – 
particularly difficult is kind of figuring out how what's your criteria and how are you going to apply it, right? Like if you say, all right, top 16 goalies since 67, well, what does that mean, right? And I think one of the reasons we vote is everybody sort of views that differently and applies it differently. You know, for me, like I put a high weighting on were you the best in your era because it's so hard to compare goalies from era to era, right? Uh, especially goalies. Like statistics are really difficult to compare. You know, um, there are so many moving parts from era, but I want to know how did you stack up in your era? And you can't just list the Vesna trophies because the, you know, the criteria for the Vesna trophy changed in 81, 82, and it became a subjective voting award, right? Before that, it was based on statistics. So how do you figure this out, right? So for, you know, to be honest with you, so I sat down with my notebook. I listed all the candidates. Um, I listed how many Vesna trophies they won after 81, 82. I listed consmites. I listed MVPs. I listed cups save percentage wins. I looked at all that stuff. But in the end, you know, I was surprised. I went through the postseason all-star teams. How many times were you first and how many times were you second? Because that, to me, tells me how many times were you considered the best goalie in the league or the second best goalie in the league. Um, and a couple of goalies that I'm, frankly, too young to really appreciate, you know, were like Ed Jockman, um, you know, and, and Tony Esposito, right? So Ed Jockerman was number one all-star team once and second all-star team three times. So four times he was the first or second best goalie in the league in his era. Espo, three times number one, which is like winning the Vesna Trophy three times, um, and second twice. So five times he was the first or second best goalie, right? Dryden, five times, was number one all-star once was second team all-star. So five times, like if the Vesna Trophy was the same as it is today, then he would have won the Vesna Trophy five times, essentially, right? The only one who would have won more, Dominic Hoshik. So that was, to me, sort of the way to sort of figure that out. But um, it was really difficult for me because there's a lot of great goaltenders that, that did not make my list. I just threw all the names in a hat and pulled them out. <laughs> <laughs> And you might have had as much success as I did. And that, that's the thing that drives me crazy with this stuff is you can spend hours or you can spend minutes and it probably looks negligible. But for me to feel good about a vote, like I got to put the work in. Um, and I think goalies, it's just really hard. You know, like Tim Thomas was another one for me where, you know, he was a late bloomer. He had a relatively short NHL career. Uh, so he isn't going to stack up in, in, in total wins. But this is a guy who won the Vesna Trophy twice. Um, he won the Conn Smythe. Uh, he won the Cup. And the year he won the Conn Smythe in the Cup, at the time, he had the, the greatest statistical playoffs ever. Right? So to me, his peak was so high that it outweighed some guys who, who had more wins, but that weren't the, the very, very best. Uh, so I ranked Tim Thomas higher than I think some other people. Um, you know, guys who got hurt from me were like Cujo, Luongo, um, you know, Osgood, um, who, you know, ranked up a lot of wins, racked up a lot of wins, but weren't, um, you know, weren't really the best of the best of their time. See, and that's why I picked Marty Brodeur as my number one, because he had a lot of wins. He had 140 more wins 
than anybody else. Uh, the most shutouts, most games played, most saves. But his career save percentage was good at 912. His goals against was really good at 224. Uh, won the cup three times, the Vezina four times, the Calder, and a, twice an Olympic gold. But to your point, he was a first-team All-Star three times. Dominic Hasek was a first-team All-Star, I believe it was uh, five times or six yeah. times. Um, so I understand, you know, where you're going with there, there, there. But I, I looked at it and I said, and I don't know where you are, Sean, with it, but I looked at it and I said, okay, three-time, but a four-time Vezina, but he won the cup three times. He did win the Calder too, and he's got more wins. And it's not just a handful of wins. It's 140 more wins than anybody else. And that's why I had Brodeur uh, ahead of Patrick Waugh and Dominic Asha. Part of it's the eye test, right? Where you get all done, you look at all the statistics, you look at everything else. I, I saw, you know, most of these goalies play a lot. I, I saw Marty Brodeur play more than anybody just because of circumstances. Um and I'm sure that influenced me to a degree. And, and to me, there were tears, right? Like you just mentioned it. I think those, the three guys you mentioned, Hashik, Wah, and Brodeur are that top tier that you're going to fight about. And then, you know, Dryden and Espo and whoever are in that next tier. And that, I didn't really pull names out of a hat in case anybody's listening and thinks I actually <laughs> did that. Um, I kind of did put them in tiers. And then from the tiers, tried to order them, you know, almost in threes and say, these are the top three, what order, these are the next three, what order, so on and so forth. But it was a hard process. And as we go forward, they're going to get even more difficult, especially, you know, if we put all the forwards except for the centers, both wings together as one, as we've discussed, I mean, that's going to take multiple hours, which in a way I'm grateful for, because I can just close my study door and say, I'm busy. <laughs> I did it in tears as well but I did it differently than you. And, and that's what makes it difficult. Like I'm a huge Marty Berdur fan. Um, I have utmost respect for Marty Berdur. Uh, I had him fourth. And the reason I had him fourth is to me, you can't beat Dominic Hoshik. And like, what's really, really hard is how do you separate the goalie from the team, right? Like Berdur played for the devils for all those years. Uh, really good team, really good defensive team. Um, you know, Dryden played for the Canadians in the seventies. Uh, it's, it's hard, you know, you can't, goalie can't control who he plays for. So you're splitting hairs here and that's why we vote. People have different views. Uh, but that was mine. Defensemen are next, next week. We'll run defensemen. Nick, thanks for joining us, man. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks guys. Be well, be safe. Thank Nick for joining us. It was great uh, to get his insight and what he's learned from Bill Daly and Gary Bettman. And also, uh, look, to talk about the goalies. And Sean, speaking of goalies, uh, right in our backyard here, we could have a eventually have a brewing Russian goalie rivalry, right? The news that Ilya Sorokin, there's uh, a report now that he could be signing with the Islanders once his contract in the Continental Hockey League expires April 30th. They've been waiting for him. And obviously, we've already got. Uh, Igor Shesterkin with the Rangers. So Sorokin, Shesterkin, New York, New York rivalry. What do you think? I think it'd be great. I think, uh, you know, a lot of the rivalries that have been really good in the past have featured elite goaltenders, right? You know, you talk about the old Ranger devil rivalry um, and Longquist and Brodor before that Richter and Brodor, you know, any other one you want to get into generally there's, there's a goalie there. That's kind of the backbone because the goalie is a backbone of a good team. So, you know, 
I think it'd be great. I, I think I want to wait. Um, I, I think I'm in that camp and, and probably in a minority in that camp right now that the, the Shersturkin, I'm not completely sold yet. You know, we've had this argument at the trade deadline and, you know, we've had it numerous times. Like, I, I you know, there's a lot of goalies that have had a, a good run in the NHL and then have kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, I'm not saying that's going to happen here, but I would like a bigger sample size before I, I anoint Tim as the next great goalie for the New York Rangers. And the same thing for Ilya. Like I know his numbers in the KHL are fantastic. Uh, I don't know if that translates to the NHL. And I certainly would like to see him play in the NHL before I'm ready to decide that for the next decade, those two Russian players are going to go head to head and be the focal point of that rivalry. That's no fun. You need to have a strong opinion right now. Yes or no? <laughs> no. That's my strong opinion. I figure yeah. I got a 50 50 shot, and I don't know that I believe in Shosturkin yet. All right. And well, I, I, if I don't believe in Shosturkin, I can't believe in Sorokin until I see him. And I, look, I mean, I think that's fair, right? I mean, we we've seen Shosturkin play twelve games in the NHL, and they've been really good: ten two and 252 goals against, the nine thirty two save percentage. But it's still only twelve games, and we haven't seen anything from Sorokin. But you know, it's amazing how these two compare so favorably from what they did in the Continental Hockey League too. Their numbers now Sorokin played more games in the in the KHL, but I mean, he had a career 1.70 goals against and a 9.30 save percentage. And Shesterkin had a career 1.68 goals against and 9.35 save percentage. So very comparable. And I, I look, I, I, I've seen Shesterkin 12 games, but from what I have seen and from everything I've heard, it is he is the real deal. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you. You got to wait a little bit longer. We don't know exactly what Sorokin is, but if those numbers in the KHL are anything, it, these two guys are going to be long-term goalies, I think, in the National Hockey League. Look, I think those numbers are inflated a little bit. I don't, and this is, uh, I guess it is a knock on the KHL, but it's not really. I mean, the NHL is the premier league in, in the world, and I think anybody would argue that. I, I think the the lack of parity in the KHL compared to the parity in the NHL um, suggests that there's probably some easier games to play in that league. Um, so, you know, you're, you're talking almost a half a goal difference in, in the small sample size since Shosturkin's come over. Um, but uh, again, let's, let's see what happens. And, and I think Ilya is in a perfect position, you know, with the Islanders, w with the goaltending situation they have there and kind of the mentorship that can go on um, and, and everything that's kind of going along. And, and the fact that he hasn't come out of anywhere, out of nowhere, they've been waiting for him and they kind of have a succession plan. Like the Rangers didn't really because this all happened so fast for them and how fast Shesterkin came and how other goaltenders were kind of pushing. And so there wasn't the clear cut plan that I think the Islanders have and have had for a number of years, believing that this player is going to be their next franchise goalie. No, absolutely. And look, before we get to Justin Williams, Justin Williams will be next guest uh, with us. We did get a question, and this kind of plays into this a little bit, what we're just talking about. I got a question this week from Sean Stein, at Sean2186 uh, uh, on Twitter. And he asked, who is the prospect who you were sure would become a star that never made it? And I say it plays into this because we're talking about goalies and prospects and all that. But, Sean, I know you have a long list of guys who were prospects that were top prospects that you wanted, that you sure you were sure were going to become a star and then never made it. Who are some of yours? 
A, I'm old, so I've been doing this for a long time. I've been to a lot of drafts. Um, and, and, you know, to me, one of the fun things about going to a draft is, is meeting all these players and, and trying to project a little bit. And look, when, you, when you're talking about draft players and, and you see them five or six times, you know, you see some highlights of them and then you talk to them and you're like, oh, wow, that kid's got it all going on. He he's really knows what he's doing. He's got a good head on his shoulders. There's no way he, he can't not make it. And then he doesn't make it. But, you know, when, when you asked me this question kind of to prep for the podcast, I, I started thinking back and they're really are uh, there's a ton right like i have a chris beach belfast giants jersey in my closet um <laughs> chris beach was the number seven pick in the 99 draft he was traded for yaramir yager when the capitals traded to get yager he was the centerpiece of that deal never ever was the player they thought he was going to be when he was playing in Europe, he was unbelievable. He just could never make that jump to the NHL for whatever reason. So that was one of the first guys that jumped into my head. Um, but there's there's been a ton. I mean, you, you think about all the players. Hugh Jessamine was another one, one of the first drafts I covered. Loaded draft the year he went and he was a kid who was huge uh, in a time when hockey needed huge players. That was the way the game was played. Never became anything um you know so you, you think about guys like that and then you, you think even more recently like to me a guy like Sonny Milano was supposed to be a huge goal scorer he's kind of kicked back and forth he's kind of one of those uh 4A players you know can't make it uh too good for the AHL hasn't found his niche in the NHL and then another guy that's kind of going along that way for me is is Tolvanen Eli Tolvanen mm-hmm. and, and Nashville they thought he was going to come right away and and be a big impact guy. And he was a big part of their plans. He was supposed to make their team this year and make them better. He's starting to play better in Milwaukee, but you might start to be a little concerned that he hasn't developed as fast as some of the other players. He was a dominant player back in Europe and, and it just, it hasn't translated for whatever reason. Got me thinking about some of the Rangers and their drafts, right? I mean, you, you go back, Pavel Brendel, first round pick in 99, Dan Blackburn, 2001, Al Montoya, 04, Bobby Sanguinetti, 06, Dylan McElrath, 2010, Jessamine was 2003, uh, and even now, Leas Anderson. We don't know what Leas Anderson, who was the number seven pick in the 2017 draft, is going to be. So it's it's a lot of top prospects there for the New York Rangers who who haven't made it. Uh, you know, and But the one that I thought of immediately when it came to my mind, Alexander Daig, right? I mean, Alexander Daig was the number one pick can't miss in 1993 for the Ottawa Senators had an NHL career uh, didn't have number one pick NHL career he played in 616 NHL games and scored 129 goals but had 327 points but that you know that's a good NHL career for a lot of guys but but not when you're talking about the number one pick overall and another one Nail Yakupov, I guess, is, is another one that, that certainly fits into that category. Number one pick. Can't miss, right, at that time and miss. I mean, it happens. That's, that's, it, yeah. there's, no, there's no rhyme or reason sometimes, right? I mean, these things do happen. They, 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 you don't know when a guy's going to jump up and become a star out of nowhere, and you don't know when a guy who is going to be a can't miss, you know, turns into a business. Yeah, Patrick yeah. Stefan's another one of those guys for me. One of my favorites, and, and it's very personal. I thought Adrian Foster, he was a pick for the Devils, a center. I thought he was going to be the next franchise center for that team. He never played one game. Like I said, you're you're wrong 
probably more than you're right. So, and I think everybody has that one draft pick that they gravitate towards. And for whatever reason, they're like, Oh, he's going to be awesome. And then, you know, you get disappointed. So, but I literally, we could literally do a whole podcast on this. Uh, we could. And uh, one we'll get on right now was uh, not a miss. Number 28 pick in the 2000 draft for the Philadelphia Flyers, Justin Williams has since gone on to play 1,264 NHL games, won the Stanley Cup three times, Mr. Game 7, Sean, and we were lucky enough to catch up with Justin Williams to talk about what he's doing right now, watching classic games, by the way. Uh, here's that interview with Justin Williams. Right before we hit record on this, you told us you're watching 94 Game 7 Rangers-Devils. You are currently watching that game right now as we speak, right? Right now, as we speak, I'm in double overtime watching on the NHL Network. Yeah, this is, this is interesting. You know what's actually interesting is the fact that you could you could just ski off of somebody and not get a hooking penalty. That's pretty funny. <laughs> Mato just scored, so it's over. Oh, I was ready to settle in with your play-by-play, but not only could you ski, it was encouraged. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're a classic games guy, right? I mean, you, you you must like watching. You're sitting there watching a game on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, I mean, listen, you just take what the day gives to you, right? I mean, earlier on, I was out golfing. I came back, and now I'm uh, at the house, you know, just doing the whole social distancing thing, right? It's like everyone else is doing. So, showing some good games on the NHL Network. And you recently just did the live tweet, right? A game seven last year, Hurricanes Capitals. How was it reliving that one and, and putting all your thoughts out on public too on that one? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, obviously, I've never done that before. And it's very rare that, that, that you have a, you know, the player that just goes and, and relives old games, right? We're in this unique situation where everybody's at home. So I had some time and uh, watched the game. As I said, it's very rare you go back and watch an entire game you might see some highlights but um it was interesting just to see just the ebbs and flows of of uh of a game and you know who scored the goals but sometimes uh the the bigger plays are, are kind of a little bit more minuscule to the to the uh you know untrained hockey eye yeah no i was i was curious how much of that game did you not even know happened right because you're your viewpoint on the bench and, and dealing with things, you know, whether it's talking to another player or a coach talking to you or tying your skates or whatever. Like I, I would imagine there were parts of that game that you, either you didn't remember or you never saw. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I did forget. I mean, I, I forgot that we had to, we had to kill a penalty in, 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 uh, in double overtime. Um, I forgot we had to do that, but uh, uh, you know, we did that and took care of it. And um, you know, just, it's 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 fun it really is fun going back to watch and and you know win or lose you you're a little bit even a little bit nervous playing it and um you know watching yourself play hockey on on the ice is uh is interesting to say the least because you're always critiquing yourself and saying oh why didn't i do that play that guy was wide open (laughs) it's so much easier to when you're looking up above that's for sure I always hear players say, when you're watching from up above, it gives you that different perspective and it looks like you have more time. What about when you're watching from your couch? Can you get anything from just watching, you know, even an old game like that one last year? Can you learn something about the game and what you can do? I feel TV nowadays, certainly with, uh, with, with you know, obviously the, the HD and the quality of, of, of the programming and, and network TV and everything. It's, it's pretty impressive when you watch it on TV. It's, it's, it's quite a product. I think there's only playing live. There's only probably a couple sports 
um, that I think are better on TV. And I think, you know, I think golf is better on TV because you can see more shots. Um, I think football's a game that's better on TV because you can see so many different angles and replays and everything. They make a good job with that. But hockey is just the best live sport. Yeah. Um, when you watch it, it's just, it's just, you can get ensconced in it and, and really feel the game. And, um, you know, certainly watching this 94 game on right now is, uh, um, pretty exciting for me. And I was only 12 years old. The broadcast capabilities are a little different. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. <laughs> You're killing me with this 94 game, but I mean, I was a 16 year old kid from North Jersey who was a devil's fan at the time. And Matteau, Matteau, Matteau was killing me. I lost that long ago, but it's still, when I hear man, Howie Rose, Go Matto, Matto, Matto. It, it it hurts a little bit. It stings a little yeah. bit. So you're, I'm, sure, you know. yeah. I'm sure it does. <laughs> but I, I, at the end of the regulation, when I, who was it? Nemchinov tied it up? Zelopukin. Zelopukin tied it up. Zelopukin, right? right Nemchinov. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, Zelopukin <laughs> tied it up. And Mike Richter, Richter went ballistic and he like went right up to the referee and almost speared him in the face. I was like, whoa, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to move you back to the present. You talked about tweeting the game against Washington, the double overtime game last year, and how amazing that was. The one tweet that really struck me was at the end when you talked about the handshake line and what a special tradition it is. And there's no denying that it is a special tradition. But I've always been amazed by players, and I've always tried to ask them, as great a tradition as it is, it has to be one of the most difficult things that you do in in the sport because of the emotions and how high they are. Can you just talk about as special as it is, how difficult it is to go through that process? Yeah, I, I, I certainly meant everything I said in, in in that tweet. I mean, the handshake line is one of the best traditions in sports. I mean, the fact that somebody can, you know, just chirp me and, and, and hit me a million times and, and, you know, call me whatever name in the book. And at the end of the day, you know, everyone's just trying to win. Everyone's just trying to get a competitive edge somewhere. Just try and find it. How can I get in this guy's head how can I get an advantage and at the end of the day you know when the, the game's over there's there's no advantage to be had so you just shake hands and say great series whatever happened happened and um, we can all move on I mean obviously it's a lot better when you win and you look someone in the eye and you say all right I got the better of you but sometimes that doesn't happen but um, it's really I feel a role modelish too you just for kids, you know, it's, you don't have to bring it home. You don't have to do anything. You play the game on the ice, you shake your hands after and, and whatever happened on the ice um, stays there and, and, and you move on. And I think that's a great lesson for, uh, for kids that are watching also. And we can only hope that we see those this season uh, at some point this year, right? Um, you just came back. You just got yourself back up and running. You were on a hot streak too, right before we went on pause. So, you know, you know how difficult it is when you're not skating for a while to get yourself into hockey shape to be able to play. What's how challenging is this going to be for for yourself to do it again and players around the league to do it um, if when we get an opportunity to restart this season? Yeah, I mean, selfishly, I mean, you you nailed it right there. For me, um, I came back and I was just really starting to feel good again on the ice. And and for guys who have played the game. Once you get to like game 50, game 60, and you've played all the games and, and your body's accustomed to the workload that's, that's being given to you, you're playing almost every other day, you're kind of just into it. You're ensconced in it, and, and your body feels good. You feel like you can just, just skate forever, and you're in great skating shape. And once you take a couple weeks off, it really hits you that, that you're not quite there anymore. And, and maybe the plays that 
that you thought you could make, uh, you can't really do them anymore. The, or the, you know, extra 10 seconds you could maybe stay out and, and make something happen. You can't really do that anymore. So that part will be a a a tough um, way to come back. Um, just just if you know, hopefully we do come back, um, and certainly if we do. Um, that's going to be one of the things. A lot of guys' timing. I mean, the game isn't going to be played quite as cleanly as it would have been if there had been no interruptions. So um, that's tough, um, but uh, it's a unique situation for everybody, and everybody's going to have to adapt the best way. And it's an equal playing field. It's not like one guy's coming back from not skating for a long time and everybody else has been. Um, you know, a lot of people have said no matter – when when the NHL comes back, like everybody's going to be healthy and everybody's going to be at the same level, so the the playoffs might be the best that they could be. Do you, do you believe that to be true? I don't know. That's I mean that remains yet to be seen. But there's something to be said for the grind of an entire NHL season. Um, that injuries and bumps and bruises and, and battling through injuries is is a part of really what makes the um, the playoffs so um, exciting, um, the fact that you can challenge yourself and rise to the occasion and, and maybe do things that you might not have thought you'd been able to do. And that's why we love sport. It's the uniqueness of it and, and the unpredictability. And um, coming back at the games, I don't think are going to be as sharp, certainly not early um, with the amount of time that we've had off and the lack of training that we've had access to. What about in terms of what you miss about the game, right? That you can't you can't do it right now. So, what do you miss most about going to the rink? Uh, in terms of whatever it may be, when you get there, what what is that thing that you miss the most about not being able to go right now? Well, I think guys miss the structure um, of of, mm. of having a job, of of going in every morning and being this is what I have to do, having a schedule. Um, you miss the guys in the dressing room. I hear everybody say that um, even when they're done playing. I just miss the dressing room. I just want to go in the dressing room. and I don't even need to play. I just want to go in and hang out. And, and mm-hmm. people miss that. So obviously um, that's something as well. But um, as I said, it's a, it's a very unique situation that we're all in right now. and We're all just adapting and um, doing what we can to, to stay in the best shape that we can. I was going to ask, how do you replicate that structure? I know you can't exactly, but for yourself and and perhaps you more than a lot of players have kind of embraced a, a very structured type of way to attack playing. How do you, is there a way to replicate it at all? I don't think there's a way to replicate it. I just think you uh, frame of mind. I mean, you need to have interests, right? I mean, you can't just have hockey and then have hockey taken away from you and then nothing. So you need to have interest in other things, other fields. What sparks your imagination? You know, do you um, enjoy any other sports? Um, do you enjoy, um, you know, learning, um, playing music? Whatever it is, you need to have interests. And um, I think my wife would tell me definitely I have are far too many, so I don't think I'll have a problem <laughs> being bored or anything. So what is what's what are the interests that are keeping you active and keeping you sane in these days right now? Um, well, right now, fortunately, in, in North Carolina, we can still golf. Um, yeah. We can still play, play a little bit of tennis. Um, you know, I'm, I'm becoming quite the homeschool parent here at home the first few hours in the morning once the kids get up. So um, doing that has kept me busy um, also. So um, as I said, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the 
same for everybody. Unfortunately, for um, for my kids, they get on their computers and they do their schoolwork, and I'm able to help out and, and be home for that. So um, that's uh, it's taken up a little bit of my time as well. What's the subject that's given you the most trouble? <laughs> subject giving me the most trouble? Uh, I mean, fifth grade math is getting almost to that level. Yes, where yes, you you're correct. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know it's, what you need? I tough. have it. What do I need? You need Google. I Google everything. Like, because my son's in fifth grade. I just Google Like He has a question. I Google it. I don't know how to do fraction math. I Google it. Somebody shows me how to do it. Then I show him. I look like a genius, but I know how to do it. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I mean, my, my parents used to do it to me, too. And I, I'd look at a problem and I'd tell my son, I'd be like, well, that's the way I used to do it. And he said, that's not the way we do it now. And uh, that's uh, that's probably um, something that happens every 15 years, kind of change the generations. And, and uh, math is done a different way. You get the same answer, but it's kind of done a different way every time. So uh, it's always very interesting. I know exactly what you are talking about right now. I, I really, I mean, a hundred percent of what you are talking about right now. <laughs> what about what about? I mean, I wanted to give you an opportunity because I know how much they mean to you. The, the fans in Carolina, the Caniacs in that area, and how they've stepped up the last few years. And you don't get a chance to see them right now. But you can have an opportunity here to talk to them. And I know you were doing that on Twitter the other day when you were, you know, reliving that game seven. You were out of it for a little bit. So you got to be a Kaniac maybe. And now you're back in it. What, what do you think of these fans? And what would you say to them right now? We need the fans just as much as they need us, right? I mean, sports is, is, is a way of life. And it's a, a, a facet for people to break away from the normalcy in their lives they can go and catch an unpredictable hockey game and cheer on their team and it really brings people together um we love playing in front of fans and in turn they love coming to watch us play so it's just that you know it's it's things that um you know kind of like you, you need each other and, and you know right now they miss us we miss them um but uh, we just hope everybody stays safe in this trying time and as you work to get back, I mean, every day it seems like you hear a new possibility, right? Or maybe games will be played with no fans in front of a new at a neutral site. Maybe we'll do it this way. Maybe we'll do it that way. Do you do you follow all of that, or are you are you just kind of waiting until somebody comes to you and says, "This is how we're going to do it. Get ready." Well, I don't think you can take too much stock in in hypotheticals, right? I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen in the next you know, three weeks or so. I think obviously once people get a more of a handle on this, we'll be able to take some of these, you know, opinions and, and scenarios a little bit more seriously. But for the time being, it's just all talk and this is what happens if this can happen, but it's good to be prepared. Obviously the NHL is looking at every scenario that they can, which is important because you want to be ready, but as, you know, leaning one way or leaning another way, I don't know. I mean, I'd love to play the whole season. That's probably not going to happen, but, um, I definitely would be um, be really a, a shame if, if the NHL wouldn't be able to award the Stanley Cup this year, and uh, I hope that won't be the case. One of the guys, I mean, I guess if you want to find silver linings in all of this is the healthy guys. And, you know, we mentioned before, you know, the, the guys who were not healthy are going to get healthy. And for you guys, it's Dougie Hamilton, right? I mean, if, and we, we say this with an if, we know that, uh, the league is about to return. Dougie Hamilton will be back for the for the Carolina Hurricanes. You've added Sammy Vatnin, who should be healthy. You added Brady Shea. And now you're going to get Dougie Hamilton back if the league is able to return. What makes Dougie Hamilton so important to the Carolina Hurricanes? Well, I think he's – I mean, obviously he's, he's 
shown um, for the first two thirds of the season before he got hurt that, that he's an elite NHL defenseman. Numbers are his numbers, but even if you look at the underlying numbers, I mean, he's an impactful hockey player. Um, and I think he's very impactful because he's very um, off the cuff, right? You don't know what he's going to do. You don't know where he's going to be. Um, but you know he's going to be around, and he's going to be in action, and he's going to play well defensively, and he's going to um, find his holes offensively. So, I mean, he's a, he's a huge part of our team, obviously. Um, unfortunately, he wasn't able to go to the All-Star game. He got injured just before this year, but the fact that he may come back, it's, it's, it's huge. I mean, I think if you look at the, just the possibilities of our team, um, hopefully when the NHL does come back, um, we have an extremely deep hockey team, and, and it really would be a shame if we weren't able to um, really put the product on the ice. And um, I know it's tough. I know as much as anyone that it's really tough to come back um, after missing quite a few months, but Dougie's a lot younger than me, and uh, I'm sure he'd uh, have no problem with it. Just curious for you, for yourself, has this pause given you a chance to think about your future, think about next year and – if, you know, wondering about uh, if you want to continue on. I know you just went through what you went through this season. Has the pause uh, gotten you thinking about your future at all? Um, I think I think about my future quite often. I don't think I needed the break to actually think about it. Um, but the fact that there's so many, so much uncertainty surrounding the next few months of 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 everyone's life, I. I haven't really sat down and, and thought in hypotheticals either. Um, you know, I was very comfortable last year um, being comfortable not knowing. And, and right now, that's that's fine with me too. I, I live my life and, um, you know, whatever interests are, are still there for me. And if I'm able to play against the world's best, um, then I've given myself an opportunity to do it. And that's why I came back this year. And if I could just get you to reflect for one minute, we've been doing a we've been doing a series on NHL.com where we look at each team up until the pause, and we talk about you know who the breakout player has been and all these things. But one of the things, one of the stories that we do are, are the best moments each team's had in, in, during the course of the year. And and I'm curious for you what that moment is for Carolina. I know David Ayers has been thrown out there in our story, the Svechnikov lacrosse goal. But what what might it be for you that's been that one? moment that when you think about this year to this point you're like oh man that was awesome that's why i mean i've got a couple um just individually i mean my first came back that was that was awesome coming back but um as, as far as the team i don't know i think just just growing just growing as a team i don't think i have one exact um game um you know we had played a pretty exciting game in, in vegas maybe a couple weeks before we had um this season um went to a pause that was that was pretty exciting uh, but i think i think just seeing the growth of your team that's that's what you want to see and and playing the 82 games is, is the journey you learn about yourselves and um, i think that's the best part of it is just seeing players grow on your team whether it be smeshnikov whether it be aha whether it be dougie hamilton uh, whether it be taravina where whether it be anybody on your team just growing as hockey players and um, improving the team i think that's what i enjoy most well, man, I appreciate We appreciate uh, you hopping on with us uh, for a couple minutes here. Stay safe and keep practicing that fifth grade math. All right. All right. You bet, guys. Yeah, I'll be sharp at it. Thank you. Great stuff there from Justin. Definitely thank him for jumping on with us. And really good stuff earlier in the podcast from Nick Kotzenik as well. So we thank both of our guests. Another good one in the books thing, I think, Sean. 
Well, I told you it was going to be both fun and informative. I foreshadowed what was going to happen in this podcast at the very beginning. So uh, with that said, I'm already looking forward to next week's. Yeah, we got to line up some guests for next week, but we will be back at it. And until then, everybody stay safe.